Chapter Twenty Four of the Pocket Measure by Pansy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Four Measured in Prose. During the two years' break in our story, another home had been established. At least, they called it a home. It was in an upper story of one of those semi-genteel boarding-houses which abound in large cities. Three flights of stairs, a long passage down a dimly lighted hall, smelling of old carpeting, and you will reach the door of this home. A fair-sized room, carpeted in dingy colors, a once good Brussels of the exasperating kind which never wears into honest holes, justifying one in selling it to the ragman but simply grows duller grows threadbare grows gloomy walls hung with large figured dark paper to match the carpet having grown old along with it curtains heavy and dark and gloomy looking grown old too like the dreary faced keeper of this dreary boarding-house a haircloth sofa several haircloth chairs one brisk little new-fashioned rocker in bright colors an old-fashioned sofa bedstead, dark, solid wood, looking respectable but gloomy, and speaking, like the carpet and the curtains, of other days. Marble-topped dressing bureau and washstand, the woodwork of which was sadly marred. This compromised the general furnishing of the room. To be sure, there were little home touches, tidies on the sofa and chairs, lace-trimmed pillow-shams and bolster-shams, knick-knacks of one sort or another on the high, old-fashioned mantle. All of these had a careless look, as though the owner had grown weary of keeping them in the daintiness of perfect order. Yet this one room, up three flights of stairs, is the spot where those two people, who went to the opera together on a never-to-be-forgotten evening long ago, are living out together the prose of that life which began in poetry during their homeward ride. More than a year had Will Coleman and his wife spent in this room. They were together in it now, Jenny in careful costume, for they had just come up from dinner, which was served at a fashionable hour in a fashionable dreary basement dining-room, with certain fashionable surroundings in the shape of handsome old dishes and a few solid silver pieces, and when you had said this, you had said all that was to be commended about the meals served there. Still, because of the silver pieces, and the once fine furniture, and the faded Brussels carpets, and the general air of decayed respectability, a large sum, viewed in comparison with their income, had to be paid. The question of income was a sore one to Jenny Coleman, even as it had always been an important one to Jenny West. The history of the last year of her life might be summed up in one sentence, a dreary effort to be what she was not, and to do what she could not. Her forehead was drawn in habitual wrinkles, a soured, discontented look was growing on her face, and in short, she looked as she sat there, reading the announcements of the evening amusements, as unlike the pretty girl whom Will Coleman had escorted to the opera two years before, as can be imagined. She threw the paper aside presently, the wrinkles deepening on her forehead, and opened the conversation with a pettish exclamation. "'I wish we could ever go anywhere!' "'What now?' 
it was Will Coleman who asked this short, not to say crabbed, question. He, too, had changed in the space of two years. He was growing older, there was no mistaking it. Gray touches were being given to his hair. Also, he was growing fleshy and red-faced. I find it very difficult to put the change into words. It is one thing to talk about a few gray hairs and a few added pounds of flesh and a florid look on the face, and quite another thing to sit and look at a familiar form, which was, only a short time ago, a very embodiment of alert, sprightly gentlemanliness, and realize the distinctly seen, yet indescribable change, which marks him as an unsatisfied, unsuccessful, almost middle-aged man. I don't think Jenny Coleman saw this, in full force at least, but she knew him to be in many respects unlike the Will Coleman who had made a heaven for her out of that homeward ride in the moonlight. If the echo of the tenderness that was in his voice that evening could have reached to her to-night, as he said sharply, what now, the contrast might have brought the tears. But the truth was, her heart was not busy with retrospect. Oh, nothing new, she said, the petulance in her voice being even more distinctly marked. I was just looking over all the things that were going on tonight, and thinking how we sat here cooped up in this den, not able to go anywhere or do anything. Night after night, the same thing, and the same old story of not being able to afford it dinging in my ears. I'm tired of it. We have to pay enough for the den, we might have a degree of respect for it on that account. I've always observed that things which cost a great deal fill you with admiration. I don't see why you can't go to work and admire this establishment on the strength of that. Oh, now, Will, don't try to be witty. You never were intended for distinction in that line. I don't know when you have had occasion to observe anything of the kind. It is very certain that I don't have a chance to prove my admiration by making any purchases in these days. I'm always ashamed to go shopping with any of the ladies in the house. I am the only one among them who never has any money to spend. No, that's a great trouble of yours. You never have any money to spend because you can't keep any until you need to spend it. Somebody spends a good deal more than I can earn, you know. I wonder who it is not this chap, anyhow. I've practiced economy to a degree that I never imagined possible in my bachelor days. Oh, yes, you are a pattern of economy. The tone was so severely mocking that Will Coleman, albeit he had provoked it by his own rudeness, was startled and looked over the paper he was pretending to read, studying his wife with a curious sense of wonder that one whom he used to know as Jenny West could use such words and such an accent. One great difficulty with the poor young husband was that though he distinctly saw the change in her, he did not realize a corresponding one in himself. The cruel, mocking tones went on. You never buy ices or fruits or dainty little lunches or indulge in soothing trips up the lake at fifty cents an hour. If I were you, I wouldn't talk about economy. I was always considered an economist before I was married, but I wasn't in a perpetual state of beggarliness as I am nowadays. Now the truth was that Will Coleman, 
in the days of his bachelorhood, had been so accustomed to indulging in these which he was pleased to call trifling expenditures, that the habits were upon him, and during the earlier months of his married life he had continued them thoughtlessly, though rarely without bringing his wife something which he called an equivalent, in the shape of fruits or bonbons. Very soon, however, he discovered that all these things were really alarming leaks, and he was struggling manfully, if one can apply the word to so childish a habit, to avoid all unnecessary expenses. It is true that his definition of the term unnecessary needed correcting, but all the same he considered himself a slandered man, and his face flushed painfully during the earlier part of the sentence but by the time jenny had announced herself as having been considered an economist in the days of her maidenhood he was ready to laugh no one knew better than he how persistently all her loose change had lost itself in the vortex of ribbons laces gloves and the like the consciousness that she was really saying a foolish thing made mrs coleman sensitive to her husband's laugh and in no way softened her voice oh yes you laugh of course that is your favorite method of treating your wife's views and opinions but i can assure you that i never dreamed of having to twist and turn through life in this way if i had i should have considered long before i put myself in such a position you ought to have married a rich man her husband's voice was controlled and she did not realize how her words had stung him i wish to goodness i had she declared, driven to desperation by his apparent indifference. Amen, he replied promptly and with emphasis. Then he turned the page of his paper and apparently went on with the business of reading the news. As for Jenny, she sat looking out of the window down the rows of tall chimneys which shut out all other view. Her heart was swelling with indignation. She considered herself an ill-used woman. This conversation, miserable though it was, is actually a fair specimen of the sort of talk in which these two often indulged. Do you suppose that either of them imagined the possibility of such a climax to that heavenly ride home from the opera? What an awful fact it is to have to record that there were times in which this husband and wife actually wished that the results which followed that evening's pleasure had never been not that they by any means hated each other, or indeed were entirely indifferent to each other, but the realities of married life had been too much for them, as they will be for all who do not start from a rock foundation. It is a painful thing to admit, but scenes like the one through which she had just passed were really too common to weigh with lengthened heaviness on Jenny Coleman, or make her long silent, when she had an item of importance to communicate. So she presently broke the stillness with a question. What do you suppose Dane Evans has done now? It is entirely beyond me to guess, something unparalleled in folly to judge from your tone. He will be likely to consider it folly before he gets through with it. This sentence, not wetting her husband's curiosity sufficiently to call forth a question, she continued. Have you seen him today? Perhaps you know the whole story. Haven't seen him in three weeks. He and Spafford have so much in common nowadays 
that he has no time for me. Well, he has thrown up his situation. What? Yes, he has. Mrs. Peterson told me at lunch, and her husband is in the same office, you know, and heard all about it. What has he done it for? For a piece of folly or sentimentality. Dane always was sentimental in streaks. He never would have married Eva if he hadn't been. What is he going to do? Nothing. Live on his conscience, I suppose. He professes it as a conscientious movement. I should think it had taken his conscience a long time to enlighten him. He has been there nearly ten years. Mrs. Coleman, enlighten me. What has conscience to do with Evans's clerkship? They haven't been requiring Sunday work, have they? And if they did, it wouldn't be any worse than Sunday lounging or Sunday riding, I should think. He has done enough of both. To be sure, though, he may have been taken with a desire to copy Spafford. That is just what it is. He is trying to copy Mr. Spafford, and Callie sets him a copy which he dutifully follows. Now she is enlarging her circle and taking Dane and Eva completely under her control. You haven't enlightened me yet as to what it is all about. Why, can't you see? With a strong flavor of impatience in her voice, your conscience is certainly not tender on the subject. He has decided that to be a clerk in a liquor-dealing establishment is a sin. Therefore he has thrown up his situation and is going to live on public charity or church charity. I hear he is going to unite with the church next Sunday. I suppose they'll support him and call him a martyr for a few weeks until they get tired of him. Then they will throw him off and he may go to the poorhouse for all they will care. I must say I'm sorry for Eva. Papa never thought Dane Evans would amount to much, and it seems he wasn't mistaken. Do you really mean that Evans has given up there, with no other opportunity opening, and no knowledge of what he will do next? And there hasn't been any quarrel or dissatisfaction or anything of that sort? Yes, he has done just that. Mrs. Peterson said the firm argued with him, expressed their entire satisfaction, asked if he had other prospects, and hinted pretty plainly that if it was a question of salary, they were ready to do as well by him as any other firm. But he boldly declared he could not stay if they doubled his salary, that money had nothing to do with it. He had no place in view, no prospects. It was purely a question of principle." said he had been thinking the matter over for a long time but had only recently come to a definite conclusion that means since callie spafford came home she is such a born fanatic herself that she cannot rest easy on her pillow until she sees someone preparing to become as wild a lunatic as herself will coleman's paper had dropped to the floor and his eyes were gazing into vacancy in a thoughtful way whether he had heard the last few sentences did not appear, but what he said was entirely foreign to their tenor. I must say that is astounding. Dane Evans is more of a man than I had the least idea of. Now there was that in this sentence which irritated Mrs. Coleman almost beyond control. She could not herself have defined what it was, at least she would not have liked to do so, but she answered, with increasing asperity, "'Indeed, your penetration is entirely beyond me. 
I fail to see the slightest evidence of manhood, or even common sense, in such an idiotic proceeding as this. It may be a cause for admiration, to see a man deliberately shirk his only means for supporting a wife, and hide behind an affectation of principle, but as I said, I fail to see it in that light. However, my eyes are getting opened. You gentlemen who have always been such ardent admirers of Callie Spafford stand ready to follow her lead without regard to common sense. I shall expect next to be informed that your conscience won't allow you to sell eggs and butter and cheese for Mr. Prime any more, because his other branch store sells tobacco and cider vinegar. Her husband laughed and stooped down and picked up his paper. If his wife had not been too much excited to observe it, she would have felt that his laugh was exceedingly unpleasant in its tone. So was his voice. Don't you be afraid of any such catastrophe. I have been tutored by a very different feminine from your friend Mrs. Spafford. I know better than to indulge in any such expensive principles. At the same time, I am not so reduced but that I can admire high-toned actions in another, and I say Dane Evans is more of a man than I had the least idea of. If I were rich, I'd see to it that he didn't suffer for his convictions, and his determination to carry them out. As it is, I can only admire at a distance. I have no hopes of ever emulating. Meantime, I have an item of news to communicate. Evans isn't the only man who has planned a change of base. I've given up my clerkship. No more butter and eggs to sell. So you see, you needn't fear my being demoralized about the tobacco and cider. His wife turned entirely away from the window and gazed at her husband with a half-frightened, half-incredulous air. She did not know what she feared. It could not be that any such scruples as Dane Evans had yielded to could have crossed his path. So far as she knew, there was no opportunity in his work for conscientious scruples. And also, if there had been, she had lost her former idea of him. She never quoted him in her thoughts any more as a perfect Christian gentleman. She waited a moment, then said, Well, why don't you explain? What do you mean? Wasn't my meaning plain? I said I had given up my clerkship. And what do you mean to do now? Starve in company with my half-witted cousins? No, I never expect to starve in such good company. Evans has gotten ahead of me somehow. A few years ago, I used to be quoted as immensely beyond him spiritually, whatever that may mean. And the sentence ended with that disagreeable laugh. His wife was growing alarmed. Mr. Coleman she said haughtily. If you can manage to be serious long enough to tell me what you are talking about, I should be glad. You certainly appear very strange tonight. Do I? That is because I have made such a violent effort to give you pleasure today, and I am succeeding so well. I have taken a leap into respectability such as once I had no idea of. I'm Fargo Belmont and Company's confidential clerk, salary two thousand a year you can hunt a new boarding place and get a forty dollar bonnet and three pairs of ten button kids as soon as you please who are fargo belmont and company wholesale liquor dealers the most extensive firm in the city oh it is eminently respectable 
They never sell less than a barrel of it at a time. But, Will, you will not have to sell liquor? The evident dismay in her tone seemed to amuse him. No, he said with a burst of laughter. Oh, no, not at all. I only keep a sharp lookout that other people buy plenty of it and pay for it. End of chapter 24